Welcome to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. That was my experience with Mattis. I mean, we're not only in a political role, but also working for a president who, whether you like him or dislike him, you could definitely say he's he's very uh, sporadic. He's very erratic, chaotic. Doesn't have a lot of like strategic planning that goes along with it. Guys, Snodgrass opens up for us in this episode on his high-powered career as former director of communications and chief speechwriter to former U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. You just heard Guy a moment ago. And while he's at it, he has a few choice things to share with us about President Trump. Okay, they are Guy's and not our opinions. A voyage of discovery in an uncommon age of unparalleled scientific, economic, political and social upheaval, Life on Planet Earth searches for the unvarnished truth, answers, solutions, and above all, hope for our existential crisis. Commander Snodgrass is celebrated as one of the most skilled fighter pilots in the US Navy, directing combat jets over some of the most dangerous war zones in the world, and he did it all using the lessons he learned at the Navy's Fighter Weapons School, known as Top Gun, which he reveals for the first time in his highly anticipated new book, Top Gun's Top 10, Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. It's all in my interview with Guy Snodgrass coming up. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. With Top Gun's Top 10, uh, this is actually just a fun book, some really great storytelling, some experiences in the plane where they were just fascinating and also times where I failed miserably. But what did I learn from that experience? What leadership lesson could I pull from it? And how can that be of use to people, you know, men and women from completely different backgrounds? I mean, it's not even just applicable to, to people serving in the military. It's applicable to pretty much everybody. I asked what kind of family she wanted. She said, a family like yours. Learn more about adopting a teen at adoptuskids.org. You can't imagine the reward. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Well, look, it's just grand to welcome you back to my show, Life on Planet Earth, Hope for Our Existential Crisis. And that just might be an operative way to put my interview with former U.S. Commander Guy Snodgrass in context. He was the former director of communications and chief speechwriter to U.S. Secretary of Defense, James Mattis. Guy lived through historic moments at the Pentagon and had a bird's eye view of President Donald Trump. Guy has a new book out, Top Gun's Top 10 Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. I hope you're all doing well out there. You can listen to this episode later on our YouTube channel, Life on Planet Earth. I first asked Guy Snodgrass, what was it like to work for a major figure like former Secretary of Defense, James Mattis? You know, it was fascinating because I had spent my entire career as a U.S. Navy fighter pilot. I had served as a Top Gun instructor. So as we say in the military, you know, I was a very tactical operator. I was used to flying in combat uh, over a rock, et cetera. And now you get pulled out of what is a very difficult and tough job, but it's also a very honorable ethical job. And I get kind of tossed into a very political position in the Pentagon. And 
that was my experience with Mattis. I mean, we're not only in a political role, but also working for a president who, whether you like him or dislike him, you could definitely say he's he's very uh, sporadic. He's very erratic, chaotic. Um, it doesn't have a lot of like strategic planning that goes along with it. So it was, you know, you're watching someone who is widely respected, meaning Secretary Jim Mattis, and how he has to respond to a very challenging, uh, critical period of time. So he suddenly resigned. And then you were out of a job, literally. How did you react to that? Were you surprised? I was not surprised. In fact, in my first book, I share the story about, uh, you know, his departure was actually coordinated about six months in advance. He had shared with a longtime friend of his, General John Kelly, who at the time was the chief of staff at the White House for President Trump, that uh, he he knew he needed to leave the administration. He'd lost his ability to be compelling, you know, to help guide President Trump on national security and military affairs. So he knew he needed to leave. And he'd always planned sometime in the winter of 2019, or excuse me, 2018 to do so. The problem was simply that, or I guess his benefit is that he wanted to be able to leave kind of with a bang. And, you know, the joke being that, especially with President Trump, you know, you give it give it a week and there's going to be a new crisis. And so that's what happened with the unnoticed or no notice withdrawal from Syria. And so Secretary Mattis used that as his opportunity to say, you know what, that's a bridge too far and I'm going to leave because you're abandoning our allies. We said we wouldn't do that. And so I, but my moral convictions compel me to leave. What was it like to work with Mattis? I guess the way I would describe Mattis is I think he is a fantastic leader. I th- you know, he, he's very deliberate. He's very consistent. He is clear and unequivocal with the direction, the strategic direction he wants to achieve. And not only that, but he's also very diligent. He's a hard worker and, and he expects everyone on his team to work as hard and frankly, more uh, harder than he is. So, I mean, you just are surrounded by people who are very, very good. They're at the top of their game. Conversely, he's a terrible boss. <laughs> so, you know, that's that's one of those things that I was surprised by. I, I, I came to Mattis's tent. I came to his, I rallied to his flag, as you'd say, because of the fact that he had this just sterling reputation. And I knew that this would be an amazing opportunity and experience to, to see how the U.S. government operates, how the U.S. military operates on the global stage, and then take those lessons and go forward in my career. And as you noted, it's it's kind of jarring when uh, the, the rug gets yanked out from underneath you and suddenly the waters are uh, have changed measurably. Matos, like all military leadership, uh, struck me and strikes me still as a very intense individual, very capable, a very uh, take charge sort of guy. How do you sense the humor? How was he like off campus? You know, the reality is he's rarely off campus. Um, he is, you know, he, he has this reputation here in the States of being a warrior monk, right? So he was a four decades Marine leader. Uh, rose to the, to the rank of four-star general. So he came to the pinnacle of the military, but at the same time, he never married. Um, he he would largely keep to himself, stay at home and and read, reflect, work, et cetera. So, you know, he's not an individual who is all focused at work and then goes home and, and goes out to party or or hit the dance floor. Um, he just isn't that kind of guy. But the the thing that was very commendable about that was, you know, look, he, he realized he had this opportunity after having served for four decades in Marines, to once again have a substantial influence on the men and women who serve in the U.S. military. And he always saw that not only as an opportunity to position the military for success, but also to represent the ideals that others should strive to follow and to to mimic. And so I think he just was, was very focused. One thing that has surprised a lot of journalists that I've spoken with since my time with Mattis 
is I think in their mind, they believe that like any human being, because you worked for Trump, President Trump, you were just so frustrated, you would vent your frustrations, you would throw things, be excitable. And again, he's not. He's a very stoic individual. And so he is laser focused on the task at hand. And because of that, he also would admit that, look, getting frustrated, getting angry does, doesn't do anybody any good. You just got to you know, take what comes your way, handle it, and then move on to the next task. Apparently, Mattis was taken aback when you wrote Holding the Line. Did he communicate to you his displeasure? Uh, yes and no. I mean, he, he, you know, again, now you're getting into more, less the military and the ethical stuff, and you're getting more into just simply politics. Uh, he and I had, had discussed the book project. He was supportive of my project uh, early on. And I think, you know, anytime you hear that somebody who had worked with you is now going to be publishing a book, and of course, the media started calling it a tell-all, I suspect he became concerned that that meant there was going to be some unsavory anecdotes about himself. And and uh, and so because of that, became very cautious. But luckily, look, I mean, we he and I both have walked a similar path. By, by that, I mean the U.S. military. I spent my entire career in the military and in public service. So, I'm you know, going for cheap shots is not the kind of game that I like to play. You are celebrated as one of the most skilled fighter pilots in the U.S. Navy, so by that account, you are well equipped to write on the topic of military and aviation and to give your opinions on the top 10 leadership lessons as outlined in your latest tome. So you honed your skills at the U.S. Navy Fighter Weapons School. That's known as Top Gun to those in the know, which you talk about in Top Gun's Top 10. This was celebrated in the blockbuster uh, Top Gun movie starring... Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise. So just walk us through all that, What you know uh, about how you got to write in the book, what inspired you. Sure. So when I had senior positions within the U.S. military, one of the things I told those junior to me was, you know, I'd always... I'd always enjoyed studying other people. I'd always enjoyed reading books, you know, biographies from senior leaders. And and when you do all those things and, and over time, you basically form a tapestry in your mind. You say, you know what? Like when I walk in a room and you say that person right there, because of how people respond to them, their success in their career, they're obviously at the top of their game. So what are the attributes? What are the characteristics that those people seem to imbue and embody that make them so successful? And, and as I compiled my list, as I shortened it down and I reflected, I said, you know, most of these lessons I learned as a Top Gun instructor. So the, the inspiration to write the book was simple. One, I mean, Top Gun is a, is a widely recognized institution where men and women go to, to try to achieve their full potential. They, uh, work tirelessly to do so. And so you combine that with the fact that, like you mentioned, the 1986 original movie, and then here next year, we've got the subsequent sequel movie coming out. There's just going to be a lot of natural interest. And it's a way to get younger men and women uh, to to focus on these type of leadership attributes, things that can make a very big difference in your life and in your career. During your time as a Top Gun instructor, you trained the top 1% of the American fighter pilots. That's quite a feat. Um, you must have met some highly motivated Americans and patriots. Well, I did. I mean, I, I worked alongside some of the best men and women that America has to offer uh, from the fighter pilot community. Also had a chance to do the same overseas. I worked with a lot of Australians, Brits, uh, you know, Japanese, Jordanians. So that's what was so fantastic about that career was that 
you know, you're, you're only limited by your perspective and what you've been exposed to. And so in this case, having had a, an opportunity to work with other fighter pilots around the globe gives you a really good insight into what some of the best practices are, not just in the U.S. military, but what other nations can help continue to teach us. I mean, the worst place you can ever be is to believe that you're as best or you're as good as you'll ever be and you'll never get better. So you just stop learning. Uh, I think you've always got to keep your keep your radar scanning, if you will, to look for what the opportunities and the ways to continue to to make your organization, excuse me, your organization, yourself, your community as best as possible. Now, Guy, your book is just coming out now, the top 10 leadership lessons. I won't ask you to go through each one individually and at length, but they're a very interesting collection. Focus on talent, passion, and personality is number one on the list. Then you go through nothing worthwhile is ever easy. Stay calm under pressure. The one that caught my attention was do the right thing even when no one is looking. Can you tell us about that? You bet. So this is a lesson I actually learned just a few years before I became a Top Gun instructor. I was a junior pilot, a Navy lieutenant, flying the FA-18 Hornet, and we were on a combat deployment. So we're on board an aircraft carrier, and we've, we're on our way over to the Gulf and to basically take part in Operation Iraqi Freedom. And unfortunately, there's a moment in time I'm airborne in my aircraft waiting to land, and they keep delaying the landing. And of course, you're in the middle of the ocean. There's no alternate runway where you can just land and, and grab gas. So soon we have to start sending airplanes to get airborne refueling, and people are getting a little concerned. Why, why the delay? Why is it taking so long to land? Well, once I finally land my aircraft on board the aircraft carrier, I get back to, to the place we all congregate called the ready room. I asked a friend of mine, I said, well, what happened? Why the delay? And he said, well, yeah, it's tragic. The sailor was killed on the hangar bay. And that's the kind of the mid-level of the ship where you do aircraft maintenance. And come to find out a routine action that sailors perform is to use these very heavy chains. You connect them to the airplane, you connect them to the to the deck, to the ground, if you will, the metal deck and uh, and you ratchet them very tight. And that basically makes sure that the plane is not going to move an inch because the carrier, of course, is on the ocean. There's waves. It's bobbing up and down like a cork. It's moving side to side when the ship turns. And unfortunately, the sailor responsible for tying this aircraft down didn't do his job properly. A seemingly innocent you know, mistake and a, and a small task that you do multiple times a day every day Well, he didn't do his job properly. And as another sailor was walking in between this aircraft and the wall of the aircraft carrier, uh, the plane slid forward and crushed him, cut him in half. And so that was a very, I mean, early in my career, a very, very strong lesson for the importance of doing the right thing, even when no one's looking, because you just never know what the outcomes of that type of action or inaction will cause. And so I think that's just a great reminder for, for all of us, no matter what kind of job you have, it doesn't have to be the military, but you know, in any type of job you have, it's incumbent upon you to do your job properly so that the organization can succeed. Anticipate problems is another one. Don't confuse activity with progress. Never wait to make a difference. Always have a wingman. Put the bottom line up front. And number 10, don't wait to make a friend until you need one. Of course, if you're in Washington, they say, if you want a friend, buy a dog. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But tell us about number 10. Sure. Well, uh, don't wait to make a friend until you need one is largely informed by the fact that whether it was at Top Gun throughout the entirety of my career, you know, we've all been faced with a coworker who never says hi to you, never 
wants to be friendly. And then suddenly when they need something, they come running up with this false grin and they're like, uh, you know, hey, John, great to see you. I really could use your help. Could you do this for me? And you, and you think to yourself inside your head, you're just like, seriously, you know, now you're being nice, but you're only being nice because you want something. It's very transactional. So what I'm saying in this chapter is the importance of always being comfortable, stepping outside of your comfort zone, make, make the time to just be a good person, right? Introduce yourself to others, get to know the people in your organization and your company, uh, in your community, because the, the, the first time you introduce yourself to someone, it shouldn't be the time that you're asking for something. Uh, conversely, what you find is that if you are that type of individual who, you know, extends a, a welcoming hand, if you make friends along the way, then down the, down the road, when you do ask for support or for help, those, those individuals you've gotten to know will be more than happy to support you. And so I think it's just a mindset of uh, basically don't be transactional with how you approach those around you. Instead, you know, seek to make lifelong friendships, get to know people early and often. And not only is it enriching because you get to hear a lot of great stories and get to know a lot of people who don't necessarily act or look or behave like yourself, um, but it but it has long-term dividends. And you can, of course, help those individuals as well. Were you ever in a jam at the Pentagon or during your pilot career where you had to turn to friends to rescue you? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, you could, you could pick any, any organization I've been a part of either in uniform or out. And there's always going to be a story where I was in a jam or I got in trouble or something happened where I needed support and the ability to pick up a phone and call somebody. I mean, literally to phone a friend and, uh, and they come through for you. And of course, in the Pentagon, one of the things that I found to be very interesting, I mean, when you think about America's military, much like many countries around the world, you have global responsibilities. I mean, it's not just what's happening within the confines of the United States of America. It's what's happening around the globe. What's the latest crisis in the Indo-Pacific or the Middle East or in Europe? And you can't possibly know everything all the time. And so that's why, we, you know, when, you, when you've made all these friends, it was fantastic because people cared about you. And they might come out of a meeting with Secretary Mattis that I just didn't have time to attend, but they would grab me and they'd pull me aside and say, uh, my call sign was bus. So they'd say, hey, bus, uh, I just walked out of Secretary Mattis's office. He just said this about Russia. This will be important because of the upcoming NATO ministerial. And I'd say, man, that's great. Thank you so much. Uh, because it meant that you could take better care of your boss. So, I mean, it was it was a great amount of teamwork along the way. I guess that's what they mean by back channels. You won't find it in the official communications. So it keeps you in the loop, so to speak. What was it like working in the Pentagon? That's high-powered stuff. A lot of secrecy, a lot of intrigue. Just can only imagine many people have images of it from Madam Secretary and various movies and shows on TV. Yeah, it, you know, it really depends on the situation because uh, on any given day, it could be the most boring office space in the world where, you know, you've got forty to 50,000 people coming to work. And then, of course, if something exciting happens around the world, then it ramps up. And like you said, the intrigue and the mystique dials up to all the way to 11. So it really just depended on, on what you were working on and, and the type of specific job you had. I was very lucky. I had two tours of duty in the Pentagon. The first time I was the uh, speechwriter to the chief of naval operations. That's the senior most admiral in the U.S. Navy. So that was a great experience, a good opportunity to cut my teeth and, and once again, make some friends that when I came back years later to work for Secretary Mattis, that uh, I'd already had those friendships established. And so it gave me a reservoir of strength. It gave me a, a place where I could go and some resources if I needed assistance. And so, uh, but you're right. I mean, if, it, if, if you think back to the beginning of 2017, when we were talking about fire and fury with Kim Jong-un of North Korea and 
you know, we were inches away from nuclear annihilation. And then uh, that was that was a pretty exciting time. So you were his chief speech writer. Was that a process? Did he accept everything you wrote or you had to do revisions? Or were you were you in sync with his mind and his psychology and both of you are sort of parallel? Yeah, you know, it's always going to be a little bit of both. I would say it's heavily the latter, meaning I was absolutely in sync with him because before, you know, I'm a huge fan of reading and I'm a big fan of research and, and proper preparation before you do something. So before I'd even taken the job with Secretary Mattis, when they asked me to, to come and conduct an interview, I had read everything I could find that he had published or written, uh, speeches he'd given. And even after he'd retired as a Marine Corps general, I'd watched some of the interviews he conducted where he was pretty open with his thought process. And once again, I mean, the great thing about uh, working for a boss like Secretary Mattis is that he's very consistent. You know, he's 70 years old. He doesn't necessarily change his worldview very quickly. And so once you dialed in, once you knew how he saw the world, and I'd walked a mile in his shoes as a fellow naval officer, um, it, it became very easy once you learned, as we call it, his voice. So once I learned his voice, it was very easy to write for him. But that didn't mean that, you, you know, maybe 90% of the time I would I would give him a speech and he would use it almost verbatim. There were other times if it was a big speech or if it was something that he was personally engaged with that he might uh, put a lot of pen and ink changes and hand it back. And then and we would get into a process where you would basically iterate, you know, he'd make some changes. I'd, I'd add my own back into it as well. And then we just kind of come to a consensus that, and that's what became his, you know, delivery to Congress or his speech overseas. Were you ever in the room when he was on the phone to the president? Oh, sure. They were having these heavy conversations. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, sometimes heavy conversations, sometimes they're a little bit more lighthearted. I mean, you're, you're watching, you know, as we'd say here in the States, you're watching the sausage get made because here, here's the president of the United States calling over to ask, you know, his friend, Jim, his secretary of defense to, to do something. And so, you know, it was just, it was, once again, it was great perspective to see how leaders operate at one of the largest stages or one of the highest levels here inside the United States. So it was great just to to watch that process play out. You are a witness, an eyewitness to history. Oh, of course. Remember a book written by Anonymous? Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this break. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Going to take a little step back. After you released Holding the Line, there was a controversial op-ed and a book published by Anonymous, uh, highly critical of President Trump. And many people in media and elsewhere said it was you, but you firmly denied that. Yeah, I sure did. And I think one, I think the easiest, so I guess the reason why they they kind of pointed the finger at me, there was a professor 
who studies linguistics and studies politics and said, wow, if you look at Anonymous, uh, the book that Anonymous was credited with writing called A Warning, and you compare it to my book, Holding the Line, that there's a lot of similarities in the writing style. Uh, I have not read the uh, Anonymous book, so I can't speak to that. But it it's just interesting also because it would cut against the grain of everything I've ever stood for in my life as a military officer, as someone who cares deeply about ethics and honor. Uh, I don't think you should serve in a presidential administration or in a position of senior leadership and then write serotypically, you know, this book that would undercut the very person that you have said that you're going to support. Um, so that's, I mean, that's probably the most obvious rationale for why it wouldn't be me, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the standard DC parlor game. Yeah, we don't know. We never found out who it was. No, we haven't yet. Uh, I, you know, I, I kind of chuckle thinking that at some point, if we ever do find out who it is, it'll be some low-level staffer who, uh, you know, just compiled a bunch of a bunch of thoughts. Right. But you know, it'll yeah. be it'll be interesting. I, you know, I think that what's challenging is if it's a senior-level individual, then again, in Washington D.C., that may be okay. But I think that in general, that that's just just a, such an underhanded tactic. Uh, to right. to accept a job with a person that you have significant concerns about, and then diminish that person by writing a book about them behind their back. Well, we're in the era of anonymous sources in a lot of news stories, which is sort of fascinating. It's nice when people put their name to assertions and allegations. We seem to see a lot of, according to an official in D.C. at a certain department. And so we don't know at what level, and it makes it very curious. Yes, I agree. In fact, there was a lot of news, of course, over the weekend about the, uh, you know, once again, allegations that President Trump had spoken indiscriminately about members of the military, that uh, he called them losers and suckers in reference to his decision not to visit a World War I cemetery in France when he had a state visit there in 2018. And and to your point, I mean, that's there's some danger there. I mean, you, at that point, you're comparing the trust of the president of the United States, who frankly has had plenty of incidences where he said indiscriminate things in public. So I think people can find that story very believable. And you're comparing that with uh, the gentleman who wrote it, Jeff Dickerson, who is the editor in chief at The Atlantic. And so, you know, he he vouches for the sources. I think what one other interesting thing, normally I don't take or put a lot of stock in anonymously sourced articles. But in this case, it seems that most major news outlets were able to corroborate the story with independent sources. So it makes it seem much more likely to be true. So now we are getting to the heart of a certain thing here. President Trump as our commander in chief. Your old boss left the job. You followed him out the door. How do you rate him as our commander in chief, President Trump? You did allude to it earlier at the start of our interview. Yeah, I think there's a lot of, I would put it as there's plenty of room for improvement. You know, when you think about your role as the commander in chief and as president of the United States, you represent America abroad. I think that that has been a challenge over the past few years. So there are there are areas where America and the president himself could be more consistent for our allies and partners, could work in greater cooperation with members of NATO and, and others around the world for what's not only in America's best interest, but in, in the best interests of di- diplomacy and democracy. But then also when you think about domestically, um, you, you know, there's, I think because of his position in business and through negotiations, uh, you know, falsehoods, putting information out there that's inaccurate or deliberately misleading people. Uh, in fact, I was fairly 
disappointed to see over the past few weeks as President Trump has uh, not only called into question the electoral system in the United States, but he's also encouraged his followers to vote twice, to send a mail-in ballot in and then also show up at the polls to vote in person, which is a felony. So, you know, that's not something that a good leader does. You don't directly encourage those who you lead to conduct actions that are illegal or immoral or uh, call into question, you know, America's standing in the world. And I think that that's, that's an area where there's plenty of growth opportunity. Same thing with what I describe in my first book, which is that, uh, you know, a lot of the questions I get are, what's President Trump really like behind the scenes? Is he completely different? And it's like, no, he, he, what you see in public is very much like what he's like behind the scenes. So he jumps from topic to topic. He can sometimes be difficult to follow. And because of that, and because of the fact that he likes to use Twitter as a resource to communicate with the public, but also to announce big decisions, uh, he doesn't share that with his cabinet officials ahead of time. And so that would be another area where I would say, look, if you if you do get a second term as America's president, hanging up your cell phone and then working better with the, the men and women who you've brought into your team to accomplish your agenda would be in your best interest. Of course, many would argue that uh, Washington, D.C. needs a disruptor to change the system and make reforms. Many would argue the world in America is in a much better place, much safer world under Trump. ISIS is defeated. He has reduced U.S. contributions to the NATO budget, well, with his prompting, of course, uh, increased spending on the military. Before COVID-19, we had a roaring economy. That's not such a bad record. Right. And so I think that's, you know, you kind of made my point for me, which is you do have a lot of the elements of your record that uh, a significant number of Americans appreciate. So why inadvertently undercut that record of success by doing these indiscriminate actions? And I think that, you know, a lot of times if you study leadership, um, you know, you would count that as a lack of discipline, um, as not having a strategic end goal in mind and not having the awareness that you serve as a representative for your nation. You serve as a representative for, you know, Americans from all the walk of life saying, this is what I want my sons or daughters to look up at the president of the United States and be like that when they grow up. So, you know, I, I think it's a false choice to say, well, if you want these positive things, you have to go with a flawed individual or someone who's not willing to rise to the challenge. I think you can have both. And I think that if he's elected to a second term, President Trump could easily do some of these things. It's just making the conscious decision to to do that. So his style is wanting. Yeah, I think that's a safe assumption. How is he regarded by the military, the leadership and then the rank and file? I mean, he's sort of known as a law and order president. His statements during the street rioting in, across America, it was very clear that he was pro-police. So you would assume... He has the respect of all the police force or a good percentage of the police force. How, how does that shake out in military circles? Sure. And I, I think one interesting thing, whether it's, you know, your police typically are drawn from your own community. So there's probably more similarities with how their worldview looks than members of the military. If you, you know, you think about the fact, and that's one of the great things I enjoyed about the military, it's a, it's a melting pot. You've got men and women from from every state in the United States, territories, even some overseas individuals who serve in the U U.S. military. And so everyone has, there's a wide diversity of opinion and background and experience. You have, you know, Republicans and Democrats who are serving. So I think that there's, I, my gut tells me that the president probably is a little bit right on this when he says that he has more support by the rank and file 
than he does by some of the more senior leaders. But I think part of that is because the military is, is a professional organization in the truest sense of the word, heavily founded on the belief in the rule of law, on what's on doing what's legally and ethically the correct course of action. And senior leaders are trained from, of course, the day they walk in and put on a uniform that that you need to aspire to those types of things. So when you're faced with working for a commander in chief who maybe doesn't share that same dedication to discipline or is willing to be pretty fast and loose with the with what's with you know the facts, then it, it puts these these men and women in senior positions in a tough spot. And that's what's been making the rounds recently in the United States is just the fact that when the military gets used in a heavy-handed fashion, that risks eroding Americans' trust in the military because it's being seen as used for political reasons or for partisan reasons rather than fighting America's external enemies. Now, aside from being a book author and commentator, you have set up your own intelligence data company. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So um, I'm the CEO for a company called Defense Analytics. Uh, We're heavy into a lot of the cutting edge areas of machine learning, artificial intelligence. And as as you watch the trend lines across the globe, that's where everyone's heading. When I was a a graduate student at MIT back in the 1998 to 2000 timeframe that, you know, the big topic then was what they called big data. The fact that storing information had become fairly inexpensive. You could, you could, you know, vacuum, vacuum up large amounts of information, but you didn't have the processing power and you certainly didn't have the artificial intelligence algorithms to do much with it. Now that's changed. So not only do you have decades worth of just information of data, but you have very strong, powerful processors that can run through that data very quickly. And then, of course, you also have the algorithmic solutions through artificial intelligence to be able to process and do meaningful things with that information. So we're we're definitely at an inflection point now uh, around the globe where a lot of nations, a lot of corporations can tap into these vast reserves of data and start to do some pretty meaningful things with them. I'm sure data is critical to the functioning of a good military. Well, it is. I I think data is critical to the functioning of most any organization, but you're right, especially when you think about the role data plays to intelligence services um, for any nation, right? The fact that part of the part of the game is to try to know more about your other nations around you than they know about you. And so that means there's a, there's a, an ever-present hunger for more data, more information. What gets interesting, of course, is that when you think about decades past, you might learn something interesting, but it, it quickly faded into the background as more information came in. Well, now with digital storage, you know something I saved 20, 30 years ago is still available. So we're amassing, and, and I mean, everybody is able now to amass these vast quantities of data. And so things you may have done two decades ago, John, if I have that data, then I can use that along with what you're doing today, what you'll be doing down the road, to make some pretty interesting observations about uh, how you might vote, who you may know, the things you might like to buy, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a, a lot of companies rushing to exploit that right now. So even tweets don't really disappear. So I'm just wondering if President Trump's tweets uh, in years to come will be uh, interpreted, dissected, and looked at by historians, and will they be scratching their heads? Oh man, it's going to, you know, I, I, I'm actually contemplating a career change to become a historian because I'd like to take part in that exercise. <laughs> yeah, right. It would be quite interesting for sure. If you look at the US military, have we the greatest military on the planet, the US? And is that important? 
in terms of strength, numbers, sovereignty, and maintaining your defenses. I think that America fields an absolutely incredible military. What probably makes us very unique isn't just the size of the military or our capabilities. It's that we we really are a joint force. We have a very uh, it's very well integrated between the Navy, Air Force, Army, Marine Corps, even the Coast Guard, now Space Force. Uh, we're used to working together and we're combat proven, which most other nations are not. Uh, Russia has some combat background and, and experience. China certainly does not. Uh, many other nations around the world field very capable militaries. They just haven't had reason to use them extensively. So that's an area where what makes America very unique is that we have experienced decades of war and we're very good at it. Um, that being said, I think that I always think of it as every country has unique strengths and weaknesses. Uh, we've seen a, a lot of aggressiveness out of China as they've been rushing to adapt, to explore the frontiers of technology and to help bolster their military as quickly as possible in the Indo-Pacific. Russia has traditionally been a very strong military uh, country, but they have uh, a relatively weak economy and they've got some systemic issues there, which hinder their ability. So, you know, it's not that uh, America is the best and will always be the best. I think that there should always be a little bit of skepticism of how do you, if you feel that you're doing well today, how do you do better tomorrow and do even better the day after that? Reagan built up our military and ultimately America won the Cold War on the back of that. Would that be correct? Well, I think that's one element of it. Uh, certainly, there was a military arms race that President Reagan, like you mentioned, was a part of. You know, and some of this had started decades prior when you had President Eisenhower in office. He had created something called the Project Solarium, and that was a deep look into, at that time, of course, the Russian, you know, what they felt was the Russian aggression around the world. How can you compete against that? And that started a multi decade campaign that ultimately resulted in the dissolution of the USSR in the late 1980s, early 1990s. So, you know, it wasn't just a one moment in time kind of a, of an aspect. I think it was the culmination of many decades and it included everything from military power to economic power, to disinformation, to convincing the Russians that they needed to pursue some very aggressive and expensive projects all because that's what we wanted them to think. So, I mean, if you read the histories on it, it's a, it's a fascinating moment in time. And then there was a lot of allies involved and international diplomacy, and uh, yes. it gets it gets complex. Top Guns Top Ten Leadership Lessons from the Cockpit is the name of your new book. You'll be doing the traditional, well, maybe not so traditional with COVID nineteen book tours and signings. This got to be an exciting time rolling out a new book. You know, it's fun. I, I really appreciated the opportunity with the first book. You realize the positive impact you can make in people's lives, when, especially when you have people. I mean, it's one thing if your family and friends say, I bought your book and I liked it. Um, it's something altogether different when someone from another country or someone in a, just a completely different part of America reaches out and just says, hey, you don't know me, but I bought your book and I loved it. Here's the impact it made. So that's the that's the joy of writing. That's the joy of of making a positive impact for others. And so, like you said, with Top Gun's top ten, uh, this is actually just a fun book. Some really great storytelling, some experiences in the plane where they were just fascinating, and also times where I failed miserably. But what did I learn from that experience? What leadership lesson could I pull from it? And how can that be of use to people, you know, men and women from completely different backgrounds? I mean, it's not even just applicable to to people serving in the military. It's applicable to pretty much everybody. So a lot of people should read this book. It's not aimed at one specific audience. 
No, it's not. I mean, I think, uh, you know, when I wrote it in mind, I wanted the widest readership possible. Uh, and, I, and I would tell people that certainly I, I would want it to be credible enough that a, another pilot could pick it up and say, man, uh, the way Guy wrote this, I recognize this. This is true and real and it's accurate. But I'd also want to be able to hand it to my 13-year-old son and say, hey, I think you'd like this and have him read it and say this was spellbinding. You know, it was very good read. And he also learned something along the way about leadership. Guy, is there any one thing the general public don't know about you and you can share with us here? Uh, man, I'm such an open book. Um, you know, we've got an amazing Bernadoodle. <laughs> so I've got this great dog. That's probably something you don't know about me. But, you know, I've had a great chance to, you know, with the first book, with this book, with uh, working with Secretary Mass, like you said, doing TV commentating. I, I don't know that there's any one great story that people don't know about me. But but yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've really enjoyed the conversation, really uh, would encourage your listeners to check the book out, uh, consider grabbing a copy because I think, I think they'll really enjoy it. Guy, a great bit of work. It was fascinating talking to you and I hope we catch up again uh, for your next book. If I'm sure there's another one coming at some point when you take a little rest after this one. You bet. Thanks, John. Thanks for your time. You've been listening to Life on Planet Earth with John Aiden Byrne. To reach the host or learn about advertising or sponsorship opportunities, call 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. That's 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com. 973-664-9460 in the U.S. or email burndesk at gmail.com.